You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone. It's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. This episode is brought to you by our Patreon members. Thank you so much. Join our Patreon for extra episodes, interviews, extra content, and to help support the podcast and help us continue to do the work we do. Go to patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl to learn more. Werewolves for Jesus! I'm Jen McMenemy. And I'm Jenny Williamson. And this is Medieval History Fangirl, the seasonal edition. Okay, it's not actually Medieval History Fangirl, it's still us, your favorite ancient history fangirls. But this week, actually for the next couple of weeks, we're doing something a little different. Normally, we don't leave the ancient world, but as Jenny was researching berserkers, I couldn't help myself. I kept texting her all this weird and little-known facts about werewolves of the medieval period and into the 17th century. Yeah, because berserkers are sort of tied to werewolves, but I tried to keep the Catholicism out of it, and Jen really wanted to put it back in. Catholicism and in some areas just general Christianity. But yeah, and I was like, but but how can you leave this part out and that part out? Like, we must talk about it. Because it wasn't about that, Jen. (laughs) No, and I actually really respect the work that you did to try and keep the Christian lens out. But I was like, but there's another side of the story, the wild Christian lens that we need to add on. And I knew so much about wild witch trials and the Christian lens because a few years ago, I'd been working on a fiction project involving werewolves. And I had already fallen down a really deep research rabbit hole. Because I had done all this research for this fiction project, I had a lot of random knowledge that I just couldn't help sharing with Jenny at 2 a.m. because that is when my brain seems to be the most active, worried about life, the probability of my death by werewolf or alligator, and, you know, wondering if a super volcanic eruption will happen and destroy much of life and the world as we know it. All these are normal 2 a.m. thoughts, right? I'm not alone here. I mean, climate change is definitely going to get you faster than that, in my opinion. Not if the supervolcano goes off. (laughs) Well, yeah, but I mean, the chances of a supervolcano going off just now versus climate change in the next 10 years, eh, I'm betting on climate change. I'm not disagreeing. I'm just saying, like, the idea of a a cataclysmic eruption is something that just will not leave my brain. So, after our Berserker episode and my episode last year, Werewolves of Wolf Mountain, 
I had this feeling that it was time to take the werewolf mythology a little further forward in time and break with our normal parameters for this podcast by talking about what happened to the werewolf myth when it moved from ancient into medieval and then more modern times. And because I presented a great case and because it's our podcast, you're getting this episode. You're actually getting three episodes, but a little more on that later. So strap in for a spooky season spectacle unlike any other. Let's talk about how the myth of the werewolf fared when it met with the Catholic Church. That's right. We're going to do a deep dive today into Catholic werewolves because they were different than modern werewolves and different from the ancient Greek and Roman ones we've already covered. First, I have a confession to make, Jenny. Have I ever told you about my deep-rooted fear of werewolves? You have before, but I bet you're going to tell me again. (laughs) I really am, because I think our listeners will find it equally traumatic and funny. So when I was a little kid, a very little kid, I was absolutely terrified of werewolves. And this lasted until I was around 10, and we got this big Irish wolfhound as our family dog, and my parents convinced me that Irish wolfhounds were bred to kill werewolves. And I mean, that's not exactly true. They, they were bred for wolf control. But my child brain believed that my Irish wolfhound would protect me from all werewolves. In all seriousness, uh, my fear of werewolves was intense. I have a very large, extended American, Italian, and Irish Catholic clan. And they all lived very close to each other and my family when I was growing up. Literally, they were all within a 10-minute drive, and everyone in my family knew I was terrified of werewolves. And I had older cousins who would call up my house every full moon and ask for me in a deep werewolf voice and then howl into the phone. And sometimes they would even scratch at the windows of my ground floor bedroom in a full werewolf mask. Is there a werewolf in the background right now? I'm getting that vibe. (laughs) It's my dog. He's like, no, how dare anyone do that? My dog is a silky Yorkie. He's a very tiny dog, but he thinks he's, he's a werewolf. Anyway, can you imagine like just people at your window in a full werewolf mask scratching and howling every full moon? That is rude. (laughs) It is so extra. So that just really ruined my night's sleep, my parents' night's sleep, and has haunted my nightmares for decades. In short, as I do with all things that scare me, I became equal parts fascinated and petrified of werewolves. Your childhood was traumatic, Jen. I mean, between the Catholicism and the werewolves. (laughs) I mean, it was. (laughs) I mean, look, I think that trauma made me the fun and engaging person I am today. I am remarkably well-adjusted. And deeply dysfunctional. I don't support people traumatizing children. I don't either. I think once would have been enough, but it was multiple times they did it. Until this dog and my belief that my dog would protect me. So, let's get back to the genesis for this episode. A few years ago, when the paranormal romance genre was at its height, I worked on a novel about werewolves and witch hunters. It was not a good book. It was a very sexy book, but it was not a good book. Because I wanted a good chunk of my novel set in the past, it required that I do a lot of digging into the werewolf folklore and history surrounding the Middle Ages through to the 1700s. So, while that novel might never see the light of day, and that is probably for the best, this episode is the happy upside to all that research. 
Although, maybe if our patrons demand it, I might give them a smutty scene from the book on our Patreon, behind our paywall. I would like to hear that. You've read this. You've read this book, and you've read that smutty scene. I probably have, but just don't remember because it's been memory hold, so. Oh, God. It's like, this is like 10 years ago or more at this point. I would love for us to read each other our early sex scenes from, like, old books sometime, because that would be kind of fun. In fact, that would be a fun Patreon episode, is Jen and Jenny read each other sex scenes from our early novels. If our patrons want that, like, we'd have to ask them. I don't want to lose patrons because they're like, that's not what I'm here for. This is just what I want to give them, Jen. (laughs) So let's begin our dive into the Christianization of the werewolf. Ancient werewolf or were-animal tales exist all over the world, and this episode is going to focus on European werewolf tales. Not because werewolves and were-crocodiles, bears, hyenas, tigers, foxes, etc. don't exist in other cultures or areas of the world, but because they do. And we really want to dive into those legends another time and give them their due. So for now, let's just look at how the werewolf tales of Europe changed to reflect the new religion in town, Christianity. The first question that you might have is why a wolf? Like, what is the obsession with a human turning into a wolf? That is a valid question. To be honest, there are many other were animals other than wolves. Bears are just as common as wolves in Russia. Where foxes are a thing in Japan and other Asian countries, as are tigers and lions, where crocodiles and hyenas are huge in African mythology. But the big bad of Europe, the predator who came into the most contact with humans, was the wolf. And let's be very clear here. While wolf attacks did happen, wolves had a lot more to fear from humans than the other way around. And that, I mean, that's true. Wolves were brutally hunted and in fact made extinct in the UK at certain points. They were hunted into extinction in Ireland and the UK by the mid-1700s. They were just killed off. That's important to keep in mind as well. We're talking about the brutality of wolves and how scary they are is that, in fact, wolves were and continue to be victims of humans. Yeah, I know they're trying to, like, bring the wolf population back in some places in, I think, the UK. But, like, let's be very clear. The native wolves were hunted out. This is a big kind of a contentious issue in the U.S. too, because the wolf has been taken off and then put back on endangered species registries. And in some states, it's now legal to hunt them. And it's pretty brutal what's happening and how they're doing it. So I wouldn't necessarily say that in modern times, we're all so much better. No, we're not. And, you know, there's there's a fear of these apex predators. It goes all the way back to like the beginning of like our fear of something that is stronger, faster, and, you know, capable of harming us. But the reality is all of these animals have more to fear from us than we do from them. Right. So anyway, back to what I was talking about before, the big bad of Europe, the predator who came into the most contact with humans was the wolf. Wolves tend to hunt in packs and could easily be a threat to more vulnerable humans, women, children, the elderly, the unhoused. They were also a threat to livestock. They moved quickly and most silently when they hunted. And they were so feared and such a threat that in many places in Europe, they were hunted to extinction or near extinction in their natural habitat. So this is from a Wired article called Fantastically Wrong, The Strange Real-Life Origins of the Fiendish Werewolf. Quote, So the question becomes, why is this so widespread? Do we humans just innately fear turning into beasts? Not quite. But in her essay, this is an essay being quoted in the article, Stewart proposes a fascinating theory to explain where all this came from. And like so many great stories, it all began with a little bit of interspecies (laughs) cross-dressing. When humans started developing sophisticated hunting techniques, she argues, many peoples would kill a large predator, stuff it, and use it as a decoy. So, 
taxidermy, basically. The idea was to lure more of its kind to investigate. Though, quote within the quote, of course the hunter would soon hit upon the plan of himself putting on the animal skin. That is, an individual dressed, for example, in a wolf skin could approach near enough to a solitary wolf to attack it with his club, stone, or other weapon, without exciting the wolf's suspicion of the nearness of a dangerous foe. And with that, many thousands of years ago, the werewolf legend was born. Back at camp, the wolf man would participate in ceremonies, dancing, and crying, and further assuming the demeanor of the wolf. That idea of, like, that taxidermy wolf, that decoy, like, we see that even now. There's, like, duck decoys, there's scarecrows, there's all kinds of stuff that we still use in modern times. So, let's break this down a little bit. Werewolves and were-animals in general were apex predators, animals that humans feared contact with. In this quote by Caroline Taylor Stewart, she suggests that the origin for werewolf mythology comes from essentially how humans used to kill wolves, which is to literally put on the skin of a wolf and walk amongst the pack to trick them and kill them. That's some real twisted logic here. I'm not saying that it, it's not right. It's just, it's dark. Now, this leads us nicely to the next section of our episode. How do you make a werewolf? In ancient times, the process of making a werewolf was about magical transformation, usually in service to a god or as punishment from a god. In our episode, Werewolves of Wolf Mountain, which was about ancient Greek and Roman werewolves, we discussed how female werewolves were able to turn into a wolf at will and were generally in service to Hecate. And that is kind of berserker-like, right? Because um, berserkers changed into animals in service to Odin. And they were very much not cursed. They hadn't done anything wrong. This was kind of something that they had as a gift, as opposed to being a punishment. Although Hecate does turn some people into dogs and stuff like that, they're not generally what we consider werewolves. Right. So the most famous ancient Greek werewolf is Lycaon, who was transformed into a wolf as a punishment for killing and cooking his own son and feeding him to Zeus, as one does. Absolutely. Why wouldn't you do that? Lycaon was just not making the best decisions at that time in his life. That's all. <laughs> like, there are so many Greek myths about people trying to cook and feed their children to the gods. Was this really a thing? Because, like, the more times you see it, the more times you're like, were people just doing this? Was this just, just a thing that was done? Anyway, so Lycaon was cursed to remain a wolf for nine years because he ate the human meat that was his son's meat. He didn't eat it. It's because he, he tried to feed it to Zeus. Tried to make Zeus eat the human meat. Anyway, and he wasn't allowed to eat people during this time. If he did eat the human meat, then he'd be cursed to remain a wolf forever. This is considered one of the earliest written-down Western stories of a werewolf, not including the Epic of Gilgamesh, but that is a whole other debate. And the tale of Lycaon has all of the makings of a werewolf tale. It has the human doing something to run afoul of the god, someone with supernatural powers, and being turned into a werewolf via divine power, basically. This deus ex werewolf appears again in our episode on Viking berserkers, when we have Odin turning men into werewolves, bears, or boars to fight as his elite warriors. And it's not as a punishment, you know, it's, as you said, it's kind of like a gift. It's like a sign of divine favor, I suppose. But what if you didn't have the help or punishment of a god? What if your ability to turn into a wolf was based on something else, something more sinister? Because as the werewolf folklore passed on from the BCs into the 80s, the ways of turning into a werewolf changed. Now, this is a comprehensive list from the website werewolves.com. And 
It sounded a little like vague, (laughs) but I actually did go through. I double checked and vetted all of these ways to be turned into a werewolf in other places and made sure that it was accurate and we weren't giving you bad information. And because the list is super thorough and fun, I wanted to share it with you. It's a very long list. So here are all the things that could turn you into a werewolf in both ancient and medieval and probably into the 16th and 1700s times. Quote, being bitten by another werewolf. Being scratched or clawed by another werewolf. Selling your soul to the devil. Wearing an enchanted belt made of wolf skin or fur known as a wolf belt. Applying a magic salve to one's body. Black magic and witchcraft. Eating like Hanthropus flowers. They're white or yellow flowers that are said to be grown in the Balkans. Inhaling certain potions. Simply wearing an animal's pelt. I mean, you know, don't you be getting those fox skin soles, people. Uh Uh-uh, you're going to be a werefox. I guess any kind of fur coat might qualify here. Placing a real wolf pelt on one's body and then drinking beer mixed with blood. That's like a Tuesday, right? Just a normal Tuesday, yeah. Drinking water from a wolf's paw print. I mean, I did that last night. Last night was Tuesday. Eating the brains of a wolf. Spells and rituals. Very big. (laughs) Having sex with a werewolf. I mean, I can't guarantee that nobody I had sex with was a werewolf. I know, I can't either, so I'm probably a werewolf. Eating an unborn fetus. I put that on my pizza. (laughs) Uh, no, no, no. It's like the 10 Plagues pizza shop. (laughs) Fetus and mushrooms. No, no, no. Worst pizza ever. Wearing a belt made of the skin of an executed criminal. Being cursed by a witch or a troll. I mean, that definitely happened to me. Being born on Christmas Eve. Being blasphemous and getting cursed for your sins. Why are all mine about me being cursed for my sins? I mean, you're the Catholic one. I know. I'm also a ginger and left-handed, so... I don't think cursing me for my sins works if I don't believe in the concept of sin. Genetics, having a werewolf in your family, and like before, I can't guarantee that nobody in my family was a werewolf. Drinking from a lycanthropus stream. What is a lycanthropus stream? So I think it's a stream where the lycanthropus flowers probably get their water from. Drinking downstream from wolves. Sleeping on a Friday night under the full moon with the moon shining directly on your face. Being the seventh son. Or being the seventh son of a seventh son. A lot of sevens here. Yeah, but you could just be the seventh son of any son and be a werewolf, right? Mm Mm-hmm. That's why there was like this real push for seven sons to avoid the curse of the werewolf by uh, joining the church. You could stop being a werewolf by joining the church. If you were the seventh son of a seventh son, if you dedicated your life to, like, the Lord and became a uh, a monk or something of that ilk, you could avoid being a werewolf. I think this is now all Catholic propaganda. It's just recruitment propaganda. That's all. You're not wrong. Being conceived under a new moon. I mean, now this just feels like they are really throwing stones at pagans and also people who just don't, you know, know what time they were conceiving or having a good time. Not going to confession for 10 years? Oh, that's it. I am definitely a werewolf. It's definitely been past 10 years for me. Being gruesomely murdered on a full moon? I mean... That's awful. You're gruesomely murdered and now you're stuck being a werewolf too. Well, that one's on my bucket list. (laughs) No, it's not. Being born on a full moon Friday. Tasting human flesh. Cannibalism is definitely linked to this. I'm seeing that pattern. Absolutely. And murder is really linked to this as well. So, Jenny, are we werewolves? Well, yeah. I mean... (laughs) (laughs) It's been a long time since my last confession, and I am pretty sure at this point I'm both a werewolf and a vampire. I mean, I guess the point of that is that I get to keep my looks, right? That's the upside. (laughs) 
I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. So this comprehensive list might have made you laugh, but the reality of what we're seeing here is that turning into a werewolf became almost as easy as breathing. Just like in our Ancient Vampires episode, you can see that becoming a werewolf is so simple that it's shocking all of us aren't werewolves today, and maybe we are. Ow! Ow! <laughs> and there's a reason for that. During the medieval ages through the 1700s, life was tough. Things happened to people that they couldn't explain, and some of those things included gruesome murders. Because this is where we get to talk about murder. Becoming a werewolf, unlike becoming a vampire, has a lot to do with murder. Fear of murders, both from human predators and wolves, but we might be getting a little ahead of ourselves here. Before we continue down that path, I wanted to take a minute and talk about female werewolves and why I'm not going to cover them exhaustively in this episode. First, female werewolves are badasses. I am so weirdly team female werewolf. And there's a few reasons I'm not going into a deep dive on them in this episode. First, because I actually found enough information to do a separate episode on female werewolves. I mean, yay! Thank you, history, for demonizing women. Oh, wait. And there was much rejoicing. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not sure if the amount of information I have will be enough for a main feed episode or a Patreon mini-sode side quest. But what I have found out about female werewolves is fascinating. Mostly they fall into two camps. They either werewolf for profit, including political power, or for pleasure. There is an overwhelming feeling in these stories that the woman has done something wrong, something villainous, or she delights in her ability to secure food and provide in some underhanded way, making her an oddity during medieval times. She is not seen in the same sympathetic light as her male counterpart. Instead, she is seen as a transgressor, an abomination, and a lot of times as someone who deserves this fate. Because she isn't cursed. She wants to be a monster. And there is so, so, so much to unpack here, but all of that deserves its own episode and space. So for now, that's the TLDR. But don't worry, the full story is on its way. So let's get back to werewolves, or... The Mostly the story of male werewolves, because it turns out that this is gendered like everything else in the patriarchy. The werewolf myth as we know it today really became codified during the Middle Ages. During this time period, as the Roman Empire fell and was replaced by the rise of Christianity in Europe, there was a massive culture clash between folkloric, often pagan beliefs and Christian dogma. And you can see that played out perfectly in the werewolf stories that arise from this time period, and then eventually lead into the horrors of the later witch and werewolf trials of the 13 to 1700s. What we wanted to focus on first is the bridging of the ancient traditions, where a human would put on the suit of a wolf, a pelt, a belt, something like that, and become a monster, which dates to potentially ancient Greek and Roman times and possibly older. The dates here are very fuzzy because it's hard to date oral folklore. Werewolves in the Middle Ages as in ancient Greek and Roman times, were very much seen as a slightly bigger than average wolf. 
They did not walk on two legs. Sometimes they might be able to talk with a human voice. Sometimes they couldn't. They might be missing a tail. They might have kind human eyes. But otherwise, they were indistinguishable from wolves. Warwick University's Center for the Study of the Renaissance breaks down the anomaly that is the medieval werewolf. Quote, The medieval world was certainly interested in the supernatural, but this seemed not to encompass the horror element that later became popular, perhaps because there were plenty of horrors in everyday medieval life. The church, a huge force in the Middle Ages, was keen to connect the idea of the supernatural with miracles. So while church scholars explored the issue of therianthropy, metamorphosis between human and animal form, this seemed largely in order to deny the possibility that human-beast transformations could occur. The medieval bestiary, a tradition that showed to be intended to communicate a moral message from God to mankind, excluded exotics like the siren, amphisbaena, basilisk, and manticore, but not werewolves. What's an amphisbaena? I'm not sure, but it's some kind of half-and-half creature. It's fascinating that the werewolf doesn't appear in this bestiary, and that's possibly because the legends of the werewolf are largely folkloric or literary. Think Ovid's Metamorphoses and the Epic of Gilgamesh. But as the Middle Ages wane on, this starts to shift, particularly as the Christianity of it all starts to become a part of the story. This is a quote from Medievalist.net. Five things you might not know about medieval werewolves. Quote, Interestingly, where in recent films and TV programs it's always the wolf ripping out of the man, the medieval werewolf often wears the wolf. One way of man-to-wolf transformation is to wear a wolf skin. This is most common in Old Norse Icelandic literature, where the wolfman is frequently referred to in skin-related terms, echoing the tradition of berserkers, battle-frenzied warriors wearing nothing but bear or wolf skin. Gerald of Wales, who lived from 1146 to 1223 AD, also reports a priest encountering a werewolf couple while traveling across the region of Ossory in Ireland. When the priest refused to perform last rites for the dying she-wolf, fearing that she might be some devil's trick, the man-wolf unzips the wolfskin to reveal an old woman underneath as if it were just a coat. The difference in transformative mode results in a difference in emphasis. When the wolf comes out of the man, it is as if the wolf has been there all the time, lurking under the guise of a seemingly ordinary man. The violence it is about to unleash is heralded by the freshly torn flesh and streaks of blood. The man is but an empty shell, broken, dead, cast away. The wolf is the essence. In the medieval portrayal, on the other hand, even though in some cases the wolfskin form does bring out the beast within, the man is only wrapped, hidden, but never destroyed, and the werewolf is more like a riddle, waiting to be solved. That is fascinating. Right? And the way in which the lore eventually comes down to us is the beast is within, he's been cursed, and it will come out, and the man has no control. But in the medieval times, they put on the skin, and then they don the essence of the wolf to do whatever it is they want to do. Yeah, and I was really thinking about the horror aspect of it that was in this quote that I read. A lot of the time, more modern depictions of werewolves have this horror element. You know, it's horrifying to see a person you thought you knew transforming into this monster, this werewolf. Whereas in the past, the horror seems to be experienced by the individual within, like the horror of being transformed into a beast and nobody knows that you're you're yourself on the inside and you can't communicate and speak and you might be killed. Like we see this in the ancient myths, like men being transformed into animals and being ripped apart by dogs. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's such an interesting change that we see because 
werewolf mythology is about body horror, right? A lot of times it's a a stand-in for puberty and the changes that your body goes through. It's also a stand-in for things like serial killers and people next door who by one day wear one face and by night are something completely different. And as Jenny said, like the modern interpretation is the wolf is always inside waiting to be ripped out, right? Whereas in the medieval sense, the human is cloaked in the wolf. They're still in there, but they can't break free. And that's really fascinating. The human is trapped in the wolf sometimes, right? Yeah, they're still they're in there. They're trapped and they can't break free. In some myths, they have full knowledge of what the wolf is doing, but they don't have uh, agency over their body, which is similar to what we get later on when the wolf comes out. But it's just like the darkness, the beast was always there. Whereas in this one, the beast kind of envelopes them and takes over. It's still a scary story, but it's like the, the horror is inverted, you know? And I think it's inverted, too, in the ways in which we understand things now, like mental health and even body horror. And I think that's some of the reason why it's changed. So I wanted to include that quote because medieval werewolves are, as I keep saying, fascinating. I can't think of another word for it. They are pretty different to what we think of when we think of werewolves a little later on, like in the 1400s or the 1700s. These werewolves are men hidden away inside the skin of a beast, much like the berserkers. These werewolves are not about the inner beast coming out to play and wreak havoc. They are about an outer beast being donned to, well, create havoc. This is really prominent in other werewolf stories from this time period, and in particular, this will continue throughout German folklore through to the 1800s. This is a quote about the medieval werewolf from Warburg University's Center for the Studies of the Renaissance. This quote breaks down the difference between the medieval werewolf and the wolves who come later. Quote, Medieval werewolf stories existed in the Romance tradition, which presented a man, a baron, a knight, or a king, trapped in bestial form through outside agency, almost always the man's wife. So this means that usually it was the man's wife who transformed him into a werewolf. Is that what they're saying? Sometimes if she didn't transform him into the werewolf, he was already cursed to be a werewolf and she like does something like steals his pelt so he can't turn back. Okay, so it's usually the woman's fault. Uh, Somehow it's the woman's fault, even if she's not the person who cursed him. Even if she came into this marriage married to a werewolf who she didn't know was a werewolf, somehow it's her fault. He's in wolf form. Right. So some werewolves were natural and turned into wolf form periodically. In this case, stealing their clothes prevented them returning to human form. Other cases occurred through various forms of magic. Unlike modern filmic depictions, which tend to give the werewolf a physical element of humanity, simian facial features, for instance, or the ability to walk on two legs, whilst emphasizing the ferocious bestiality of the creature's actions, the medieval stories largely downplayed the bestial aspect. Instead, they showed, through the werewolf's rational and generally gentle behavior, his human mind and sensibilities trapped inside an outer form that was indistinguishable from a wolf. If a werewolf attacked someone... It was with reasoned purpose, to express the injustice done to him and often to identify the culprit. There were several versions of the story, perhaps the most famous being Marie de France's Bisque la Vraie, and to a greater or lesser extent, the narratives were inherently misogynist. The hero of the anonymous Melian, for instance, learns that women cannot be trusted. While in the Welsh story now generally known as Arthur and Gorlagon, surviving in a Latin version, The miscreant wife, a traitor as well as an adulteress since her husband is the king, is punished by sitting at a table with her wronged husband and being compelled to kiss the decapitated head of the lover who had plotted with her whenever the king kisses his new wife. That is a weird scene. It is a really weird scene, and it's just like, 
again, on the side of team wife, like, I married this guy who did not tell me he would be a human by day and a wolf by night, and he gets up to all kinds of things, and I'm sorry, I'm not here for it. You did not disclose your werewolfism at the time in which we signed our legal marriage document. Therefore, divorce. One of the things about the werewolf mythology and why women are so demonized is women who know this secret or who are able to, like, steal their husband's pelt so they can't turn back into a werewolf, they have an element of power and also calling out the bad behavior, potentially, of their spouse. And that wasn't something that women did. If a man behaved appallingly to his wife, it was generally an open secret. People knew it. In these werewolf myths and folktales where the woman takes the power and forces her husband to be a wolf, she always comes off as the adulteress. But I'm like, but maybe he's just a dick. Like there's a whole other narrative that's been silenced by making the wife the villain here. Yeah, I, th- I think you're absolutely right. I mean, taking the man's pelt is kind of like calling him out on his behavior and making it public. And if we're talking about a man who's abusive behind closed doors, like that's something that would be scary to abusive men, I suppose. Absolutely. And a wife having the power to like publicly out them would be terrifying. Who's telling the story is always a question we have to ask here. I think we know who is telling the story with the inherent misogyny. You know, and also this to me is very reminiscent of those Selkie stories. I don't know if we talk about it later, but you can see that overlap here with the taking of the of the pelt in order to force a selkie or a wolf to remain in one form or the other it's usually a woman though right where the husband steals the the pelt it's not always a woman it's it's it could be either or the other interesting thing that you told me about selkies is that the selkie in human form is in fact a person on the outside with a seal's mind so it's kind of the opposite it's the absolute reverse so they're kind of they're forced into like this form and then they start forgetting their life in the sea and they're always sort of stuck in between two places like the Selkie narrative is such an interesting immigrant story. It's just it's an interesting lens of always being torn between two places and where your identity lies and how that works. So let's get back to why I included this quote. And I included it because it tells us something about medieval werewolves. It tells us that the general feeling behind the medieval werewolf in literature is a sympathetic one as long as it's a dude. The werewolf is a wronged person who cannot help turning into a beast. He's got those kind eyes underneath that wolf exterior. I don't know what it is. The kind eyes really turn me off. Right? (laughs) The werewolf is a wronged person, generally a man, who cannot help turning into a beast. He is a dangerous predator, but he attacks in order to right wrongs. Generally, he is working against evil and wanton women, who have gone against the laws of God and man and transgressed those cheating hussies. Jenny, can you smell what the Christian monks are cooking here? I really wish I couldn't, but yes. (laughs) (laughs) This shit is so fucking wild. And it's a change from what we've seen before. Now the werewolf has been made into a noble martyr, one associated with the upper classes and the nobility. This is how you continue cementing the patriarchy. Impoverished people who become werewolves, well, they don't get the same sympathetic look. No, they're dealing with Satan and all his minions. They're probably serial killers. They're weirdos. But nobles, now nobles, they've been unfairly cursed because of women and Satan. That's some real dark shit, Jen. Yeah, don't you love it when I just peel back the dark corners of history and go, let me tell you something. So. That is the story of the medieval werewolf, or at least the story for now. But as I'm sure you've guessed, the episode doesn't end here. We're going to move forward in time to the werewolf trials. 
Because if you thought only witches went on trial for making pacts with Satan, well, you're very clearly wrong. Pele, Hawaiian goddess of volcanoes, fire, and rebirth. Maeve, Celtic warrior queen and nemesis of heroes. Kiyohime, Japanese fire-breathing snake demon. Pesta, Norwegian spirit of the Black Death. Our book, Women of Myth, is a fascinating look at women and femme characters in world mythology, including goddesses, heroines, and monsters, with captivating illustrations by Ringo Award-nominated artist Sarah Richard. It's the perfect gift for the mythology lover in your life, including yourself. Find Women of Myth wherever books are sold. So now we're going to talk about werewolves in the starving times. During the Renaissance, things start to change. There is a conflict here of religion, folklore, and science, and that is where we start to see witch and werewolf trials. During the 1300s through to the 1700s, witch and werewolf trials were common. We hear a lot about witch trials, but going on at the same time in most of Europe were werewolf trials. Werewolf trials were incredibly prevalent in France, Germany, and Eastern Europe, and the reason for that is because wolves were still very much the apex predator in these areas. In England and Ireland, wolves were hunted to extinction by the 1700s, but this wasn't the case in the continent. Wolves roamed free and were a dangerous predator, and from 1303 to 1850, the world went through the Little Ice Age. The Little Ice Age caused global cooling by about 3.6 degrees Fahrenheit. And this created a lot of chaos on a global scale. We aren't sure exactly what caused this ice age, lower solar output, explosive volcanic activity, and a change in the atmospheric circulation have all been blamed as contributors. And you all know that I'm going to just claim a volcano did it. I mean, a volcano was part of it. I knew you were going to try to slip a volcano in here somewhere. I mean, it's my first episode of the season. What would it be like if I didn't mention a volcano? So... Why does this matter? Because during these centuries, the winters were colder, the summers were colder, the waters were colder. In general, the world was colder. And this made for starving times, times when food was scarce, and not just for humans, but for wolves and other animals as well. And this meant that wolves, who would normally avoid humans, were brought closer into contact with humans to get at their food stores and their livestock. This led to more wolf attacks, and not just of livestock, but of humans. These outlier wolves tended to attack vulnerable humans, young children, women, the elderly, the unhoused, and those who lived on the margins and outskirts of society. So as the resources got scarcer and scarcer, the wolf attacks, both where and otherwise, became more common. And of course, because death by animal attack can be extremely brutal, the poor wolf became the villain. According to the perception of the times, the amount of wolf attacks were abnormally high, which they probably were due to environmental factors and scarcity. They were too high to be the work of just a few rogue wolves. No, these attacks were numerous and so well thought out. They had to be the work of an accursed werewolf, a supernatural being, a wolf that had the intelligence of a man, a wolf who could walk on two legs sometimes, a bad wolf. And I just want to stop here for a minute because it's during this time when these witch and werewolf trials start sweeping across Europe that they try to figure out what happened here. Was it just mass hysteria because of these gruesome and violent deaths? Was it ergot poisoning, which we've heard about before? Like, what caused this? And to be honest with you, I don't know that we're ever going to know what caused it, but 
I imagine going down that way is a little bit of of madness because when things are bad, everyone wants to point fingers at everything. So this is the time period when we start seeing those woodcuttings of werewolves on two legs using their forepaws as arms and usually attacking a child or a very busty young woman. Because, you know, us busty girls are the tastiest. So I hear. So this is the background for what would become the dark ages of the werewolf hunter. Men, almost always men, hired to find werewolves and bring them to the Lord's justice. It was their job to find a werewolf, try that werewolf, or if a trial wasn't possible, kill that werewolf. And even if a trial was possible, it was going to end in the death of the werewolf. If you happen to be a medieval European werewolf hunter, here's how you'd recognize a werewolf, even in human form, and kill it. This is a quote from an article on Exemplar.com called The Rise of the Werewolf in Europe. Quote, it was said that there were also feathers, feathers, it was said that there were also features and traits that could give away a werewolf. (laughs) It would be those feathers. The feathers, those are a dead giveaway. He's got feathers sticking out of his mouth. He got into your chicken coop and he's a werewolf. It's fine. Sexy. Hot. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, so there were also features and traits that could give away a werewolf when it was in human form, such as having heavy eyebrows that met in the middle Ears that were set low on the head, curiously curved fingernails, and a loping gait. I feel like that could have described, like, half the male peasants in medieval France at the time, right? Right. (laughs) (laughs) It would seem that even in human form, the lycanthrope could not completely hide its fur, as any checking under the tongue would reveal long animal hairs, and also, if you cut its skin, you would be able to spot wolf fur in the wound. The fate of any human who is reckless or stupid enough to start looking in the mouth or carving chunks out of a suspected werewolf has not been recorded. And again, this is a real change, right? Because like now we're seeing the beast inside. The beast is always there. You're not just donning the skin, even if you are donning the skin. The beast is still there. And you still might use an animal skin to transform fully, but the beast is always there. So, look, it's a fair point. If you put your your head or your face into a suspected werewolf's mouth, maybe... Or just stick your hand in there. Yeah, you don't really have a great sense of your own survival. Now, the article continues to tell us how werewolves can be cured. Quote, The victim could be given a herbal remedy called wolfsbane or aconite in the hope of a cure, which is very powerful and acts as a local anesthetic if applied to the skin and, if taken internally, can slow the pulse and reduce heart rate. Taken in too large a dose, it will also kill you. The wolf could also be exercised out of you, involving a long religious exhortation, and many prayers and various forms of surgery were also undertaken to release you, such as having nails driven through your hands and feet, or having a knife driven into your forehead. The legendary silver bullets supposedly needed to kill a werewolf were inventions of modern fiction that did not appear until the 19th century. And, you know, for people who didn't grow up ridiculously religious, what they're talking about with, like, those nails going in your um, hands and your feet, that's religious stigmata wounds that they're creating. They're probably using, like, crucifixion nails or blessed nails. So other methods of killing a werewolf included burning the wolf at the stake, a punishment that would be given to Joan of Arc. And don't worry, we'll talk about her in our female werewolves episode. There is an interesting connection. Just wait. You could pass along the curse of the werewolf by sharing a drink with someone else. They would then inherit the werewolf curse until they passed it along. So it's kind of like the ring, right? Where you find that cursed videotape at the blockbuster and you have to pass it along before the monster gets you or something. What happens is you find the videotape, you watch the videotape, 
Then your landline rings because this is old and you get something that says seven days. And then like the girl from the ring comes and kills you in seven days unless you pass along the video and the curse to someone else. Sorry, spoilers for what's an old movie now. (laughs) That's how you pass on the werewolf curse. It's just like the ring, basically. The most simple and ancient cure was to burn the pelt, steal the pelt or skin of a cursed werewolf. That cure was common in places like Germany. In short, there weren't really great ways to save a person who had been turned into a werewolf unless you count the pelt thing. But by this point in time, a lot of the cures really were less about curing and more about saving a soul through painful torture and execution because the Catholic Church took things to a very horrifying, extremely tortury place. I just can't express the horror I feel at the idea of torturing somebody to death or burning them at the stake for their own good. Like, I just can't imagine the mindset. Yeah, I mean, it's very complicated because if you confessed, then you would be killed. If you didn't confess, then you would be killed. If you didn't confess and, like, you weren't a werewolf, then in theory, by not confessing, you could be saved. If you did confess and you were a werewolf, and I don't know, your confession was received somehow, maybe your soul could be saved. Like, it just was all about burning people for sport. Right. The soul might be saved, but you still get burned at the stake, though. Like, that's really an essential part of the process, right? Yeah. But giving a false confession was like, that was equally as bad. Like, it's wild times. I mean, what about the souls of these people doing all the torturing? Well, they're righteous, Jenny. They're doing the right thing. Oh, they're going to the hot place. Oh, we know they are. They're going to the hot, stabby place. So this is what was on the line for people accused of being werewolves. By this point in time, gone is the idea of a noble man who is suffering under a curse. The kind eyes are out of here. Thank God. That image is replaced by a deviant who lives on the outskirts of society, sneaking out at night to ravage and slaughter across the countryside. A deviant with the wolf under their skin. Just waiting to break free. And with that context, I want to talk to you about some famous werewolf cases. Because the major thing I haven't brought up yet that I've been saving is that many events documented as werewolf attacks were potentially the work of early serial killers. So here we go, starting with Germany. Stories of German werewolves are numerous. That's thanks in part to the Brothers Grimm, who, as well as being The authors of many fairy tales were also folklorists. They documented a lot of German folklore about werewolves, but there are also other sources, and as a result, the history of German werewolves is well recorded. I'm going to start with a very light story that proves when there's an industry of werewolves, there is also an industry for people to protect against them. And in this instance, I am not talking about werewolf hunters. No, this is an honest grift where no wolves are harmed. Or humans. So this is from the archive of German werewolf folktales on pit.edu's website. Quote, The belief in werewolves is common throughout all of Pomerania. One can transform oneself into a werewolf by girding oneself with a strap that has been cut from the back of a man who has been hanged. Werewolves are especially fond of attacking horses. In the village of Bork, not far from Stargard, for a long time, a man made his entire living by walking around the horse pasture in the village every night and whispering mysterious words by which he protected the horses against werewolves and other wolves, and this in spite of the fact that wolves had long not been seen in that region. And I just love that. That's so cute. It's this a guy who walks around and talks to horses for a job. That's so sweet. Yeah. That's his job. He's just going around common horses, feeding them apples and carrots and just, you know, muttering nonsense. Like, it's perfect. 
I want that to be my job. Why can't I be paid to walk around and feed treats to horses and talk to them all day? Yeah, it's the perfect job. I love it. So we wanted to start here as these stories just get darker and sadder as we go along. It is a bummer that wolf attacks were so prevalent at one point, or maybe serial killer attacks, that this job was believed to be necessary. But it's it's kind of great that someone was able to make money just walking around and talking nonsense to horses and feeding them treats. And no horses were harmed in this story, which is great. Yeah, I love it. So the next story is not a happy one. This is the story of the werewolf of Ansbach. This story involves cruelty to animals, so please be warned. This is a quote from an article on JustHistoryPost.com called Mythical Creatures, A History of the European Werewolf. Quote, In 1685, a wolf, or possibly a pack of wolves, was terrorizing the town. After the deaths of livestock, several young children were killed. Under such upsetting circumstances, the locals turned to the idea that a werewolf must be responsible, and they knew who the culprit must be. Recently, a local magistrate, who had been hated by the citizens of Ansbach, died. The people of Ansbach believe the wolf to be a reincarnation of this magistrate, particularly after the wolf was seen near the man's property. The town banded together to form a large hunt, and they managed to find a wolf and chase it into a well. Trapped, the animal was slain, and the townspeople were freed from the curse. The wolf's body was paraded through the town, and in a somewhat macabre turn of events, they cut off its muzzle, dressed it in men's clothes and a wig and beard, and hung it from a gibbet in the center of town for all to see the werewolf. This is a deeply weird and upsetting story. Yeah, and it just kind of tells you, you know, how quickly people go to a werewolf when you have these attacks that happen. Yeah. During 1685, a town experienced some hardships and wolf attacks. I suspect it was hard to be a wolf during this time because it sounds like everything was scarce. And how did the town handle these hard times? They hunted down the wolves until they found a big one. They decided this wolf was the reincarnation of their magistrate who they hated. They killed the wolf, and then they desecrated its poor wolfy body. I am not okay with this. You know, when you think about what they would have found when they found these mutilated, gruesomely murdered children, you can understand that innate terror of, like, we must stop this from happening again. We don't know a lot about these murders. They could have been the work of a wolf. They could have been the work of a serial killer. But one of the things that is really interesting here, when we talked in Ancient Vampires about how vampires are really a lot of times a code for disease and not understanding disease, I think werewolves are not understanding these kind of senseless killings, sometimes cannibalism. You know, it's it's better to think a supernatural creature did it than a human could behave like an animal of their own volition. Like your neighbor did it. And if you're going to accuse your neighbor, then you're going to pick somebody marginalized which we see playing out in this as well, fear of unexplained violence and fear of the unknown within the people you think you know, I suppose. So as difficult as that story is to hear, there is another even darker one from Germany. This is the story of Peter Stube. Peter Stube lived in 16th century Germany. He was accused of being a werewolf and he confessed to his crimes. In 1589, he spilled his story to the public. This is a quote from HistoryPost.com again. Quote, He said that the devil had given him a magic belt which allowed him to turn into a wolf, whereupon he would eat animals and people alike. He confessed to killing over a dozen people, including two pregnant women and their babies, and even his own son. He also said that he had an incestuous relationship with his daughter. Peter had a horrific execution for his crimes. So here's some torture. Just FYI, that's about to happen. 
He was placed upon a wheel and flayed with red-hot pinchers. His limbs were broken, and he was beheaded. His head was then placed in a public place above the figure of a wolf whilst his body was burnt. His daughter and his mistress were also executed alongside him. Whilst some have said that Peter must have been a serial killer, others have questioned his confession as he was heavily tortured to extract his wild stories. Peter became known as the werewolf of Bedburg. Yeah, and there's a lot going on here. First, as, as we've said several times, Peter's confession was obtained under extreme torture, which makes this entire account suspect. Peter is one of those marginalized people that is being targeted for unexplained things. We can't really trust anything that he confessed to because he was being tortured to get that confession out of him. Like, that's, that's what the Catholics thought crime-solving meant, torturing people. Yeah, I mean, to be fair, this is Germany, so they're probably Lutherans, but yes, agreed. However, it does sound like Peter was up to some really twisted stuff because he did confess to killing his own son and having an incestuous relationship with his daughter. He confessed under torture, so we, we don't really know. And a lot of these confessions, this one in particular, were so sensationalized that what we have left that tells the story were printed in these pamphlets that were then sort of like sent out far and wide as these kind of like true crime dossiers of dark things. So we will never actually know what happened. Was he a cannibal eating people and terrorizing the locals? Was he a mentally ill man who got caught up in a public panic? It's impossible to know because there is absolutely no objectivity here. So this is a quote from a live science article called Werewolves, Lore, Legend, and Lycanthropy. It gives us a little bit more about Peter's crimes, but not a lot. Quote, Stube claimed to have killed at least a dozen people over 25 years. Again, his confession was made under difficult circumstances after prolonged torture, including chunks of his flesh being ripped out with heated pincers and his limbs being crushed with stones. He was decapitated on Halloween, 1589, and his headless body burned at the stake. There is no real evidence of his crimes other than his confession, and it seems likely that Stube was mentally ill. Stube was far from alone. In the Middle Ages, werewolves were thought to mostly be created by witches, and the two became closely associated. Just as tens of thousands of accused witches were put to death, usually in some gruesome and sadistic ways, tens of thousands of accused werewolves were similarly dispatched. And again, we, we think about the witch trials and we know about witch trials. We never think about the fact that there were also werewolf trials where so many people were killed. Yeah, so this is a quote from a National Geographic article on German werewolves. It sheds a little light on what might have been happening with Stube. Quote, Some historians believe it's possible that Stube was a murderer. One has even posited that the werewolf legends originated in attempts to explain the presence of serial killers. Even if he was not, it is likely that any local wolf attacks on livestock or people were attributed to him as well. Another historical factor might well have made Stube a scapegoat. His alleged crimes coincided with a period known as the Cologne War from 1583 to 1588, a conflict between Protestant and Catholic factions. Roving mercenaries terrorized the region. Unsolved crimes could have prompted sinister folk stories of a werewolf prowling the forests. Consequently, Stube may have been singled out to ritually purge the community of evil through his execution. So there you have it. Stube was either a serial killer or maybe a scapegoat. I am voting for a scapegoat just based on the information I have. Yeah, I mean, again, like you have roving bands of people just 
terrorizing the region. Like, who knows what's going on? And I think that, you know, given the crime-solving abilities of people at the time, like, whoever they caught, it's extremely unlikely that that is, in fact, the culprit. So, if you think Germany was bad, let's take a look at France. (laughs) France is like, Hold my champagne. (laughs) Between 1520 and 1630, so that's about 110 years, about 30,000 people were executed for being werewolves in France. 30,000 people. And only in werewolf trials. This is not werewolf and witch trials. This was just werewolf trials. Like, I read that fact so many times, and I was just like, I don't, I can't, no. I read this fact, and I put it in, and then I was like, where did I find that? I had to go and like search it down to make sure it was actually true. And I searched it down three different times. And I was like, that is so wild. France had its fair share of werewolves, shall we say? It seems like everybody was a werewolf, including a famous serial killer. Guy Garnier is known as the werewolf of Dole. He was a hermit who lived on the outskirts of town with his wife in Dole, France. In 1572, killings began in his area. Child killings. First, it was a little girl. Then, a little boy. Locals claim that they had seen Guy with the form of a little boy in his mouth. He is thought to have killed at least four children. He strangled his victims first before he ate their flesh, starting with their thighs. He claimed to have done his killings in both wolf and man form. As with all werewolf trials, his confession was given under torture, and he was burned at the stake. So this is a tough one for me, because it feels like they kind of caught him in the act. And also the way in which these children were killed feels very serial killer to me. Like a wild beast attack, ripping out like limbs and body and like stuff like that makes sense with teeth and claws. But these children were strangled. That is not something a wolf does. Also, the flesh was specifically taken from the thighs, which seems more deliberate than an animal attack. Yeah, I mean, he ripped off limbs and stuff, stuff that was easier to carry. It is, again, difficult to know, but I think maybe that is an actual serial killer. Maybe it is, but counterpoint, here we have a marginalized person who lived on the edge of town, and he confessed under torture. So I would say, yeah, there may have been some serial killer activity going on. I'm not convinced it was this guy. Same, unless they did actually catch him in the act. But again, it's it's a little difficult to know that if they did or they didn't. Locals said that they had seen him with the form of a little boy in his mouth. Who knows who those people were, if they had an agenda, if they were telling the truth, if somebody made it up later to make their to make the burning at the stake seem more justified. Like, I, I don't trust anything that these medieval people say. And you're right not to. They all had ergot poisoning. Exactly. We can't get through this episode without talking about the most famous werewolf of medieval or Renaissance France, and you've probably heard of this one if you've heard of any of them. It's the Beast of Gévaudan. Now, Gévaudan is a region in France in the south-central area. It was once a province, and it no longer is. The Beast of the Gévaudan was thought to be responsible for 210 attacks and about 119 deaths. This creature ran riot throughout the Gévaudan, from 1764 to 1767. But what was it? Was it a werewolf, a hyena, a serial killer, a pack of wolves, an adolescent male lion, a dog-wolf hybrid? We just don't know. But we do know that the beast had a type, and his type was young women and children. Victims were killed by having their throats ripped out, very much in a wild animal attack style. 
Yeah, and and the Beast of Javadon is so weird and creepy because there are eyewitness accounts where people still couldn't tell you what they saw. It is a wild, very creepy, very mysterious tale. And that's all we're going to say about it for now because there is so much about this beast that I'm going to do its own episode. It's coming later in the season. I'm super excited. This is a very, very scary story. It's a very creepy tale, and we have a plan. So I wanted to leave you all with what has to be my favorite story that I found while researching uh, werewolves. This is the story of an 80, an octogenarian, an 80-year-old Latvian man who was accused of being a werewolf. He was actually accused twice. And honestly, he makes up the most batshit incredible story to explain his werewolf condition. It is so, so funny and so smart. When the judges of Jürgensburg came to question Thies of Kaltenbrunn, they got more than they bargained for because Thies was unabashedly a werewolf. He took pride in his wolfy nature. So the entire story is recounted by Willem de Blaycourt in his article A Journey to Hell, Reconsidering the Levodian Werewolf. Quote, When in 1691 the judges of Jürgensburg, at present in Latvia, about 100 kilometers due east of Riga, interrogated the octogenarian Thies of Keltenbrunn, they were certainly not looking to create another werewolf. On the contrary, they were more or less forced to question him since he was a witness in an unrelated case about a church robbery. Can we just stop for a minute? (laughs) They were there to talk to him because the church got robbed. And then they're forced to question him and (laughs) it turns out he's a werewolf. They're just like, look, I don't want to be here. You don't want to be here. Meanwhile, Thies is like, oh, but I do want to be here. Pour me a beer. I have so much fun stuff about my trips to hell. (laughs) So anyway, these judges had been told that everyone knew that Thies, this guy, had consorted with the devil and was in fact a werewolf. Everyone was like, he's a werewolf. You have to talk to him. This guy's a werewolf. Thies readily conceded the last point. Certainly, he had been a werewolf, but he had given it up years ago. He can stop wolfing whenever he wants. He just has to pass the curse along. God. He'd been in court then, too, because his nose had been broken by a farmer from Lemberg. This had happened in hell, and his nose had been damaged by a blow with a broomstick decorated with a bunch of horses' tails. The werewolves had been to hell to retrieve the grain and the weed germs that the farmer had hidden there. On that occasion, the judges had laughed at his testimony and had let him go. This time they did not laugh and wanted to know whether Thies was of sound mind and not mad. But several people present in court who knew him well said that his common sense had never failed him. It also emerged that his status had risen since his previous encounter with the law. One of the judges confirmed that the old man's nose had indeed been broken. (laughs) I read this as he's totally having them on and everybody else in the village is too. Oh, yeah. I just read this as he's just having a lot of fun. And like these judges are like, is he crazy? Is this true? And they're just so deeply invested because this is their job. And everyone in this village is like, "Okay, keep going. Keep going, these. Yeah, I get the sense that they don't, in fact, want to burn somebody at the stake for being a werewolf today. Like they don't want to have to haul out the hot pinchers. They're just here to investigate this robbery. And like this guy is like, let me tell you about my wolfin. But don't worry, I haven't wolfed in 10 years. (laughs) I gave it up 10 years ago. Same time I kicked the sauce. But like, (laughs) I feel like when he actually says, like when he actually starts talking about werewolfing, you know, in the way that he's doing it, you can see how ridiculous these accusations are. Like he's not just going, no, I'm not a werewolf. He's like, oh, yeah, I am a werewolf. And then he really embellishes it. I absolutely love, as I'm sure you're, you're getting a sense of, 
how deeply the judges fall for this nonsense. The story continues to get wilder and the judges just go with it. This is again quoting from that article. How did you reach hell? The judges asked these. Where was it located? The werewolves went on foot in the shape of wolves, he replied. Hell was, quote, at the end of the sea. That is to say, in a swamp near Lemberg, about a half a mile from the estate of the chairman of the court. (laughs) I love that the entrance to hell is like right near the chairman of the court's estate. It's like on his property. It's like he knows all about it. Everyone knows where the the entrance to hell is. (laughs) Like it's on that guy's land. He's sweating right now. (laughs) Yeah. It's like, they're going to burn me at the stake, you crazy old man. Getting back to this story. Asked precisely how Thies and his companions had turned into wolves, Thies first answered that they had put on wolves' pelts. He had gotten his from a farmer, and a few years ago, he had passed it on to another. That's when he gave up the wolfing. But when pressed for their names, he changed his story. He and his werewolf companions just went into the bushes, discarded their clothes, and became wolves. Then they roamed around and tore apart every farm animal they came across. Before eating the meat, they roasted it. How could they manage to do it? The questioning continued, since they had the heads and paws of wolves. At that point, they were human, says these. They did not have bread, but they had brought salt. Later, he told yet another version of becoming a werewolf. In an exchange about how being a werewolf could have profited him while he was still a beggar. He disclosed that a rascal had drunk a toast to him. He could pass his ability on by toasting someone else, breathing three times into a jug, and saying, you will become like me. You will become like me. If the other person took the jug, the ability to become a werewolf would pass to him. But he had not yet found anyone ready and willing to take it over. Remember, during this point in time, he was a beggar. I like that he cares that it's consensual, though. (laughs) Yeah, he's all about consensual werewolfing. Right, consensual werewolfing. So So the interrogators do not get this whole taking over the curse of the werewolf thing. They're like, no, you're a werewolf because you're a sinner. But Thies is like, no, it's a whole cursed jug thing. I have to pass it along. Consensual werewolfing. I can stop at any time. Also, I am a good werewolf. Here, let me talk some more about my wolfing. And the judges think, okay, let's keep this guy talking. He's going to fall into our trap and admit that he's in league with Satan. So this is another quote from the same article. Quote, The old man, on the other hand, categorized his ritual enemies in this way and not himself. The wizards they had fought with in hell belonged to the devil, but the werewolves were the hounds of God. The wizards dined with the devil in hell, whereas the werewolves only dashed in and made away with morsels of food to avoid the iron whips of the guardians the devil had appointed. The souls of the werewolves went to heaven, while those of the wizards were seized by the devil. Thus, the werewolves only went to hell to recapture cattle, grain, fruit, and fish in order to ensure a good crop for the coming year. They did so on the Feast of St. Lucia on December 15th and sometimes at Whitsun and sometimes at the Feast of St. John. So, these claimed that werewolves were actually servants of God and not Satan. And that they did the Lord's work in hell to protect the people. Werewolves for Jesus. These is often seen as a shamanic folk magician. His beliefs actually echo pre-Christian ones in this area. Like, it's very tied back to sacrificial kings, this idea of going into hell, getting back the grain. Like, it's all really deeply rooted in ancient Germanic beliefs. He's sometimes called the Wolf of God. And Jenny, I love him. I just love this idea of this 80-year-old just sitting down there and being like, do your worst, bitches. I'm going to tell you a story. 
Oh, yeah, he's got their number. I love that. (laughs) So that's it for this story of Catholic Christian werewolves. (laughs) Join us next week as we talk about whatever it is that we're going to talk about next. It won't be werewolves. I have a break (laughs) to write those episodes. Join us on social media. We're at Ancient History Fangirl on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, and Threads. We're most active at the moment on Instagram. We're uh, also at Ancient Hist Fan on Twitter because we are stubbornly refusing to call it X because X is stupid. And so is the owner of X. Also, you should join our Patreon because our Patreon is what keeps the podcast going. Our Patreon can be found at patreon.com slash ancient history fangirl. Literally, our Patreon is what keeps the lights on and what allows us to produce this podcast. While we make some money from ads, it is the Patreon and our supporters on that platform that are enabling us to do this. At the moment, as we say all the time, this is a full-time job that we have to do on top of our regular jobs. You know, we're recording this around midnight because that's when we have the time to do it. We would love to make this our full-time job, and we need your support. If you enjoy what we do, please become a patron. We're going to have to change what we do pretty soon if we don't get a lot more support. So if it is something you've been thinking about, considering joining a Patreon, maybe consider joining ours. (laughs) And our memberships start at just $3. You'll have access to exclusive mini-sodes, ad-free episodes, videos. I don't know, maybe I will dig out my old werewolf smutty novel and put it up there for you. Who knows? Oh my god, I would love to just read sex scenes to each other from our old romance novels that we wrote when we were in college. I would love that. There is no way that's going to happen because I can't keep my face from turning red and my entire body from feeling like it's going to die. Jenny's like, it's going to be a video, folks. It is coming. Brace yourselves. Anyway, well, it sounds like a lot of people, people come in, they come out. And uh, we always need more more support and help. The amount that we receive on the Patreon, while we appreciate it, has stayed pretty much very stable for a very long time, and it is not enough to support two people. Exactly. So we'd love to thank our patrons who have made this week's episode possible. Apologies in advance to anyone whose name we mispronounce. Yes. Thank you so much to Sky, just Sky. Haley Huntley. SJ, just SJ. Tessa, just Tessa. Emily Dinsmore. Laura Kellogg, Tiffany Shackley, Caitlin E. Beadle, Vince Maurer, Rebecca Cox, Frederick Guger, Christine A., Claire Sanfilippo, and JJB. Thank you so much. We could not do this podcast without you. Thank you all, and we will see you next week. Mm-hmm.